Hello there, this is Gary Gerani, a screenwriter, film historian, and your host for this truly exceptional episode of Kolchak the Night Stalker, Hara in the Heights, which was originally telecast December 20th, 1974. I was there with my reel-to-reel video recorder. Uh, I was preparing my book, Fantastic Television, and it occurred to me early on, after seeing the first few episodes, that this new Kolchak series was something special and really needed to be included. Uh, the episode is pretty much a favorite of most of the fans of the show. Certainly, uh, the Kolchak experts have weighed in and have said, yeah, this is, this is a really good one. Uh, uh, Mark uh, Dewidziak, who wrote the uh, Night Stalker Companion, who is the ultimate authority on the subject, uh, certainly feels that way, and I have to agree. Mark and I have discussed it. Uh, one of the main reasons why it's such a good episode has to do with the writing. And uh, this particular episode was written by Jimmy Sangster, who is something of a legend when it comes to uh, horror cinema because he was one of the founding fathers of uh, Hammer Films during their 1950s, 60s, and 70s reinvention of the horror film. Uh, prior to what Hammer was doing, most horror movies uh, from the old days were black and white, kind of you know, moldy, kind of dated, wonderful, but from another era. But after the war, um, Hammer Films kind of was there with very vital, very sadistic in some ways, bloody and sexy horror films that really did redefine the genre. As our story opens here, uh, we see one of our lead characters, uh, played by Phil Silvers, and uh, he's playing Harry Starman, and uh, talk about Mr. Silvers for a second here. He's Brooklyn-born comedic actor, famed for playing Sergeant Bilko on TV, he's been in countless movies. Uh, he went from vaudeville to Broadway and eventually won a Tony for Top Banana. Uh, he did suffer a stroke in 1972, which kind of caused his voice to be slightly uh, slurred. Uh, he did pass away ultimately in 1985. Uh, another interesting bit is that he, he has uh, a cataract operation and he didn't have a longer needed to wear glasses, but he kept wearing them because it was sort of his trademark. Uh, there are no glasses in. Uh, there's no glass in the lens, though, which brings back memories of George Reeves and the Superman series. But it was his trademark, so what the heck? You'll notice in some close-ups here, there's no glass in the lens. By the way, that little opening kind of set up a good deal of what we need to know about where the story is going. The squalor, the rats. Uh, we're talking about people who are living in a very, very uh, uh, low-rent kind of ghetto environment. Uh, and that is key to what this story is about, and we're going to be seeing how uh, uh, our writer, Jimmy Sangster, unites various themes in the story to create something that is quite exceptional. Uh, for the moment, let's talk about some of the other actors that we're looking at here. Uh, off, to the, off to the left, we, we, right here, we see Ned Glass, uh, another wonderful character actor that you've seen a million times, and... He was briefly blacklisted, like so many of them. He grew up in New York, uh, had roles in The Honeymooners, The Untouchables, Get Smart. He, he played Doc in West Side Story, and Gideon in Charade, and, and Doc Schindler in, in The Fortune Cookie. Um, other characters here were uh, John Belieffer was Charlie, and who we just saw walking out here, this is Benny Rubin playing Julius Buck Feynman, who had 70 years in showbiz, and... Uh, 
he is the first victim in our story, uh, uh, Buck Feynman is, and we see that quick glimpse of something pretty unearthly, uh, suddenly followed by the image of uh, Buck's rabbi. Uh, he shouldn't have been out gambling this night, and he feels guilty, and he does see his trusted rabbi, who extends his arms in what seems to be an embrace but it's an embrace of death. And as usual for this show, uh, the cinematography is quite wonderful. You'll notice uh, the change of lenses when he extended his arms and the distortion with the wide angle told you right away, you're, you're, you've had it, folks. Uh, very, very effective. As the story goes along, you know, we, we, we're going to be... Uh, uh, essentially getting into a tale that has three main themes that all kind of dovetail. There's an old age theme, there is a trust theme, and there is a social neglect theme. And this is kind of unusual for Kolchak, the Night Stalker, because uh, usually the, the, uh, the themes were there, but they were not that significant and they did not connect to the plot as much as uh, the ones in this story do. By the way, our director did a wonderful job on this, uh, uh, Michael Caffey. This is the only Kolchak he ever directed, and this was the only Kolchak episode that Jimmy Sangster wrote, and it's really a shame given how well it turned out. Uh, I should mention that, like most Kolchak episodes, it shot mostly on the Universal lot. They did occasionally go out and do, you know, went to some locations here and there, but, but mostly it was a, because uh, it was cheaper to do it, uh, a studio shot show. Uh, Kolchak's exchange with the uh, with this young police officer is is interesting. Um, that's uh, his name is the actor's name is Shelley Novak, playing Officer York. What's interesting about the conversation is that basically Officer York says, "Yeah, an old man croaked," and um, Carl takes some issue with that, uh, saying, "You know, you're going to get old someday." Uh, and this is important because it establishes that. Carl uh, has a conscience and, and is thinking about uh, old people, is thinking about the dignity they lose, etc. Very good line there about, uh, <laughs> I've seen more dead bodies than you've had TV dinners. The original line was, I've seen more dead bodies than you've had hot dinners. I, I like the change. Uh, there is an interesting, there are many things going on in this episode in terms of the writing that are, that are fun. Uh, the key thematic points are the main things, and I'll, I'll keep explaining how they're dovetailing. But also, in a, in a, in a lesser way, it's kind of a... Uh, movies are, are mentioned quite a bit in this episode. We're seeing right here, um, one of the characters is going to be mentioning that uh, the deceased uh, was a big movie fan. He loved movies, right? Uh, another interesting moment here will be when uh, 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 the character Joe, played by Ned Glass, recognizes Kolchak right here from a previous episode, The Spanish Moss Murders. And in that one, uh, uh, Joe was a building superintendent, and he, he also encountered Kolchak. Of course, Kolchak is fibbing about it here, but it's interesting that there is a character that from a previous episode that didn't happen too often. Of course, we could see the fact that Phil Silvers doesn't have glass in his... There's no glass in his eyeglasses, but that's okay. On TV, who the heck knows anyway. Uh, but more important, what's happening here is that his character, Harry Starman, uh, who just spelled his name out, 
uh, is really emphasizing the the uh, the conditions that everyone in the neighborhood is uh, has to deal with. Uh, why is all this neglect? I mean, this man apparently their friend was eaten by rats, and uh, you know we saw everything that was going on. How horrible that this area is! And um, so a point is made about why isn't someone doing something about it? Of course, Carl, who's taking down this information, is also just intrigued by hmm. Killed by rats that quickly? Uh, wow, how could that be? Uh, it's obviously more than just rats that did the job here. This is a significant scene between uh, Tony Vincenzo and Carl Kolchak. Uh, on the surface, it seems like so many other scenes that they played, these two actors playing these characters, but what they're talking about, again, is going to dovetail totally with the themes. I mean, Carl is making a big uh, point here uh, uh, about the moral decay about the, the, the decline, the, the, the conditions and all of that, the bleeding hard stuff that Tony wants to kind of uh, lessen a little. But at the same time, Tony uh, uh, is also saying, look, you get something here. This is a good story. Follow up on it. I'll back you up on it. And Carl kind of mocks him. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're going to really, uh, you're a real crusader, Tony. But the truth of the matter is, uh, this is a, a significant moment because we believe Tony. Uh, Simon Oakland is playing this moment totally straight, and uh, it's important because of where this is going to go in this particular episode. Another interesting bit of business here is, um, <laughs> I have to say, it's like uh, Carl is very generous uh, with Tony's money. He wants to help out Harry Star, and his impulse is... is the good thing, uh, but of course it's it's Tony who has to pay, and Tony does. Tony doesn't flinch. This is also significant because in very subtle ways we're getting little indications of where these people are really at deep inside about how they really do feel about these things. Uh, this bit of business here where Tony is, is ordering you know, some food, including this pickle, whatever, that was added, that wasn't in the original script. Uh, we have an interesting thing happening here with Miss Emily. Uh, it's setting up a couple of, of important uh, things we need to know as the episode goes along. First, she, of course, her job is to deal with all these letters from these older folk. And one of them is a, a man who's getting shots and he still, you know, wants to be very frisky at age 73. And uh, Kolchak is amused by this. Uh, but again, the age theme. Uh, we've already been, we've already established the fact that these old people are being treated without much dignity. They're living in these horrible conditions. Uh, now we have the age theme brought up again, this older man that she's in connection with who still wants to be vital. He's not through yet. You know. The other thing that's equally important that's revealed in this exchange is that Miss Emily is writing a mystery novel. And very much like Agatha Christie, uh, she's working at night. And it's important to establish uh, that Miss Emily has been working nights because that will be key uh, in the climax of our story when we get to it. So again, our writer is, is rather brilliantly layering in all of these things that will have tremendous payoffs as the episode goes along. And of course, it's always a pleasure just to watch these wonderful actors interacting and their characters at this point were pretty, pretty. I mean, Carl obviously was a fully developed character when the show even began, but Miss Emily, they, we all now accept them, like them, and enjoy the scenes together. 
What's happening here, uh, and we sense uh, probably a setup for another, another killing sequence, um, uh, this couple, uh, Saul and Miriam Goldstein, they were played by uh, Herb Vigren, who's a veteran character actor, seen a million different, he did six episodes of the old Superman TV series, uh, and Naomi Stevens. Uh, interesting as the scene got started in the narration, Kolchak conveyed some guilt in his narration for not doing his job. He says something like, you know, if I had been on the job, maybe these two people would be alive today. Of course, they are going to be killed shortly. Well, as we know, Carl is always on the job. That's pretty much all he does. So he really shouldn't, you know, put himself down for that. But that's in keeping with the whole moral point. We're too easy on ourselves sometimes. And this, this story is kind of saying that and exploring it in a few different ways. Uh, by the way, also, once again mentioned, the, the, uh, the sub-theme of the movies that pops up all through this episode. They just came out of a theater, and of course it was playing a modern movie that they couldn't quite get into, and they talk about how much they love the old Nelson Eddy and Jeanette McDonald film. So that idea comes up quite a bit in, in this film. We will, we will, in this episode, we will deal with it a little later, too. Uh, also revealed at this point are those Nazi symbols and uh, painted on the walls, and uh, this is a Jewish neighborhood. So right away we're thinking, hmm, uh, is Kolchak, uh, the Night Stalker, indulging in hate crimes? Uh, it would seem to be a little kind of heavy for the type of show it is. But in truth, there's actually another explanation. The SWAT sticker goes way back, way before the Nazis adopted it. And by the way, this is many of them are reversed SWAT stickers at that. As usual, the wonderful handheld photography adds so much uh, to the suspense of the scene as this couple take a shortcut, which um, you know they never should have done. Uh, and again, look at look at the lighting. Uh, uh, slight slight movement to the camera, uh, kind of simulating their own unsteady feelings. Again, this is really really good filmmaking. And uh, I have to say, every episode of this series, there's not a single one that falls down in that department. They're always very, very uh, visually alive. Uh, Ronald Brown did an amazing job on this series, uh, considering how quickly they had to be knocked out and the extra time it takes to design shots like that, to, like this, to light them. Okay. And, of course, this is so beautifully written and directed as well. Another case, and now we're pretty, we're becoming pretty familiar with how this killing creature works. He appears as someone they trust. This elderly couple, late at night, they would obviously trust a police officer. Once again, the killing embrace, very, very effectively, effectively done. Uh, of course, our next act here begins with uh, the aftermath of that. Uh, you know, uh, Kolchak the Night Stalker was uh, mostly shot the Universal lot, they would occasionally go out to some real locations because that was also, you know, key to the flavor of the show to seem real and that you, the reporter was really out there. Uh, fortunately, Darren uh, uh, McGavin and the, uh, the TV crew had gone out and shot all that great stuff in Chicago initially, which is always, you know, laced into the episodes, which maintains that same feeling. Once again, we, 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 uh, we have Carl talking with that same young cop. Uh, in the original script, it, it kind of just ends with the cop with his little quip as he walks away. But, of course, Kolchak always has to have the last word. 
So an additional line was added, better jokes too, uh, so Carl could indeed have uh, the final line. Uh, Mr. Starman re-enters the story, uh, Mr. Phil Silvers. Now look at this, again, the camera's moving. There's no real reason we're not looking at an action scene, we're not looking at whatever, but it does create a life. I don't want to belabor the point, it makes such a difference. And when I first watched uh, The Ripper, uh, and I saw that they were not dropping that angle, they were uh, embracing it aggressively, uh, I said, okay, this show is special. Of course, you are going to have, this is a classic studio shot, and it's pretty static. There's a little life to it. But even look at this shot. Look at the nice lighting on them. Uh, many TV shows you just, you know. Of course, Kolchak, the Night Stalker, when it was out on the streets, was being shot at night. Even, even uh, you know, on set, uh, Universal, they did a lot of night shooting, which is, again, added a lot of expense. But they didn't want to do day for night. Uh, other shows had, other Universal horror shows had done that. Uh, Night Gallery, The Sixth Sense, and they kind of pulled it off. But Kolchak really wanted to be more realistic that way, and I give the show a lot of credit. Now, what's happening here in the dramatic situation is that Mr. Starman is pointing out that, hey, what's going on here? This guy moves into town, this Hindu, and he opens a, an Indian Hindu restaurant in the middle of a Jewish neighborhood, plus uh, Mr. Starman is linking the man who opened this restaurant uh, to all these swastika symbols that have been appearing around the neighborhood. And quite honestly, it does seem to make sense uh, that, um, you know, they're, 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 maybe this new person who came in uh, completely out of left field and all of a sudden these swastikas are out there, well, he could be the culprit. Uh, what's interesting here is, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're now getting a little deeper into the core of what's happening here. Uh, and as we, as we learn about this man who opened up this restaurant and what he's all about, uh, we will, that will have dividends, not only in terms of the plot, but what it tells us about Carl Kolchak as well. And quite frankly, uh, we know what the show is about. Kolchak, like Columbo, is, is kind of a two-dimensional character. He's amazingly interesting and fun, whatever, but we're not quite sure about his full real life as a human being. Uh, and yet, we're dying to know more. Uh, that was probably a stuntman doing that little jump down. I know a little later on, unless that maybe really is, no, well, that's obviously Darren McGavin. Uh, later on, you'll see a stuntman really doing it well, and they, they, they handle that beautifully. Uh, point I want to make here is that uh, <laughs> Phil Silvers is kind of doing a Janet Lee and Psycho bit here in that we assumed he was going to be in the whole episode. He seemed to be that kind of character. But actually, this is his final scene where he encounters, uh, once again, that strange creature, this time appearing as Carl Kolchak, as Carl is on the other side of that fence. A uh, whole different form of attack. We get no outstretched arms and all that. Frankly, that would have been a bit much doing that same routine over again. Uh, but... Mr. Starman uh, is out of the story now. And uh, that is sort of a little shocking and uh, a little surprising. But into the story is this new character, <laughs> who is a very significant character. Uh, and he said one word, Rakshasa. All right, and we are going to learn that Rakshasa is the name of this 
murdering creature that can transform itself to look like people that its victims trust. And playing the character was um, distinguished actor Abraham Sofier. Uh, and his character that he's playing is Ale Lakshim. And uh, the, the, Hindu, the Hindu who opened that restaurant, uh, totally incongruous in that neighborhood, and is obviously more than just a restaurant owner. Here we have a significant, important scene in the story for a couple of different reasons. Uh, these are plainclothesmen, uh, Thomas, uh, played by Robert Carnes, and Prodman, played by Paul Sorensen. Uh, this is an important scene. It's a humorous scene, of course. Uh, as usual, they're trying to kind of push Carl around. Uh, it's a little bit of a police brutality moment or the threat of it, but Carl plays it very cleverly. He, he in describing what he went through, he, he manages to, to cut out with a, or come up with a yell, a little shout, which draws the attention of Tony Vincenzo, who's just outside. And uh, Tony barges in saying, hey, what's going on here? This is really important. This shows what Vincenzo is really all about, and uh, granted, Carl has fooled him and used him, but no, uh, uh, think of this from Tony's point of view. Uh, this is my man that you're pushing around. I'm not going to accept that. And not only that, police brutality? Hmm. It tells us that Tony is more than just a stuffed shirt. He has a conscience. He has his own moral views. When it's part of a world that he understands, police brutality is something, he's right there for Carl. And this is important, given where the theme of this story is going to go. Uh, I always really appreciated that. And, you know, on the surface, it plays like so many other scenes that they might share. It's funny, it's clever, Carl is doing something a little crazy, and, you know, Tony's part of the scene. But no, in this story, it really is telling us more. And uh, like I say, we, we will get back to that. The character now that, uh, let me just get into this for a moment, uh, the exterminator, Mr. Ravis, who is played by Jim Goodwin. Uh, Mr. Goodwin played uh, Crewman Farrell in the first three season, in, in three first season episodes of Star Trek. You may remember him. <laughs> he was also on some, in some early Voice of the Bottom of the Sea episodes. Um, I like the fact that he even mentions how... Uh, how his lunch uh, is filled with chemicals and preservatives in a very distant way. Again, the writer is making a comment about how society is failing people in the bigger ways and even in the slightly smaller, somewhat smaller ways that still kind of resonate. Uh, I'd like to get back to Mr. Sophia for a moment and just talk about the amazing career he had. He was born in 1896 in Rangoon, Burma, uh, died at age 91 in 1980. Uh, he began his movie career in 1931 with the Dreyfus case, uh, played the Jew uncredited in Things to Come, okay, that's the name of the character, uh, and the judge in Stairway to Heaven. That was a uh, really dramatic, interesting use of, of his great facial features. He also has key roles in Quo Vadis, The Naked Jungle, and countless TV shows. Uh, including the mighty Casey on the Twilight Zone. He was the inventor of the robot that joins the baseball team. And various thrillers, Lost in Space, Time Tunnels, Star Trek. He was in Charlie X. By the way, there was some narration at this point, which I'm going to try to read, uh, that would have been at this exact moment. What's the old song about the hotel up in that hill? That if the rats won't get you, the bedbugs will. 
Well, if rodents were destroying the oldsters in Roosevelt Heights, uh, then maybe it was a bed bug. Harry said the Hindu Nazi was crazy as one. And of course, now Carl has entered the, uh, the restaurant and is going to try to get to the bottom of this. Uh, there was another line, uh, also as he was uh, uh, getting into the place, uh, which is, to paraphrase an old cliché, I don't know much about politics, but I know what I like. And Nazism, I don't like. Where it breeds, death usually festers. I'd sooner have rats. Good line, uh, good little thing, but I, I guess the, uh, the editors felt it was a little too dark and intense for Kolchak, the Night Stalker, and really... The story isn't about Nazism, and to, to place, if it was, it would have been more appropriate, but it, it turns out it's, it really isn't, so I, I understand that. By the way, the dish that, uh, uh, apparently, that uh, Carl is eating uh, would not be appropriate for an Indian restaurant. I found that out from reading somebody's comments somewhere. Uh, and the actor we're looking at here uh, is, is Barry Gordon, and uh, he began his career, he's playing a character named Barry, I don't know if that was just a coincidence or if a draft of the script just used his name. Uh, he's explaining now to Kolchak how, how crazy his his boss is, uh, the man who's painting swastikas and doing all these other crazy things. Uh, a moment about Barry Gordon. He began his career as a child actor. Uh, he did a novelty song called Nothing for Christmas in 1955. Uh, but then he won a claim for A Thousand Clowns. He was in Archie Bunker's place uh, later in his career. And he became very, very active in politics. Oh, and for all you animation fans, he was the voice of Donatello for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, but anyway, uh, at this point, and this is the only scene that Barry Gordon does in this, and he's, he's very good. Very funny, a classic Kolchak kind of character, a little, a little, you know, off center, and providing humor, and uh, working very well off of Darren McGavin. Of course, what's what's happening here dramatically is uh, that uh, you know Carl's realizing he's going to have to dig into this a little bit more. Excuse him, excuse himself, just to go to the restroom, but uh, it's actually to do a little bit more investigating, and. Uh, Again, we see these SWAT stickers. You know, the SWAT sticker goes way back, way earlier than the Nazis, and that is going to be so it's a good idea to explore that here. What a clever idea to do this in a Jewish neighborhood, and automatically we do get this sense of anti-Semitism, but it isn't that at all. There's something else going on here. Um, anyway, uh, at, at a certain point, uh, you know, I mean, Karl Kolchak is a professional monster hunter. Uh, <laughs> of course, given the bizarre nature of how the Kolchak adventures are done, each one plays as if he's encountering something otherworldly for the very first time. He'll never say, hey, you didn't believe me about that vampire or that werewolf or whatever. No, it's it's as if he's encountering these creatures. For That's part of the formula, part of why some people have issues with the weekly installments of the Night Stalker, because uh, they just feel it's running the whole idea into the, the ground. It's absurd that uh, a reporter would be encountering a different monster every week. And to that I say, as I mentioned in one of my earlier commentaries, uh, hey, you either go with this or you don't. Uh, uh, drama can work on many different levels. It doesn't have to be literal. It can be figurative. It can be symbolic. Uh, as mentioned many times, uh, this is a takeoff, or uh, this is looking at the Watergate era. This is a metaphor for everything that 
we had just gone through because this was the show that came out in 74. Uh, so, yeah, it has to be like he's dealing with a monster for the first time each time out, and you have to go with that. As I finally told, I think I mentioned in the earlier commentary, well, if, if you have to think of him in a straitjacket in a sanitarium somewhere, that after the events of the first film, uh, <laughs> he's just been reliving the experience, substituting different monsters in his mind, and we're getting the opportunity to see into his mind and, and experience these things with all the pleasures, the attendant pleasures. By the way, the... Um, the, the Rakshasa hunter here uh, mistook Carl for, for the monster. And this moment here where he's kind of praying and, and, and putting his head back and crying, weeping, it says a lot because uh, he's beginning to realize that for years and years and years and years he's been fighting these creatures, but he is getting too old, even though our... our, our theme of, of age is basically saying you're never too old. To fight monsters, maybe, yeah, maybe maybe the numbers do count at a certain point. And he's so frustrated that he may not be able to do his sacred job anymore, and that he's even mistaking innocent people and what's going to happen. This is going to be a setup in an interesting way for uh, essentially thinking of maybe uh, passing on his duties to Carl later in the story. And that tells you quite a bit about, about Carl. Uh, anyway, uh, this scene here is kind of fun. Uh, I mean, at this point, you know, Vincenzo was getting a little impatient. Hey, you know, you came to me with the story, this bleeding heart story that I was willing to be, you know, get behind you, and now this is degenerating into what? Uh, which is typical, and that's the way most of the episodes kind of work. Uh, what I find amusing here is that uh, sticking his head out from behind the shot will be Ron, who will then jump into this conversation with an absurd non sequitur that uh, <laughs> will definitely kind of uh, uh, break the tension a little and also offer another opportunity for Vincenzo to have a kind of funny line. Actually, in the script, Vincenzo is a little... Nastier to Ron after Ron makes his comment. It's not just, uh, well, thank you, Ron. Uh, it's, uh, thank you very much. Uh, he actually uh, calls him psychotic in a nice way. Uh, but that was obviously changed. Uh, it's interesting. You could write certain lines, and then you kind of realize that the characters, not exactly right for the characters, and they are ultimately adjusted before filming begins. These, these actors certainly knew their characters very, very well at this point, and... Uh, play the scene extremely well. But yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're getting more information. Carl's putting the pieces together. Uh, Tony's getting more and more uh, uh, frustrated, in a sense, uh, in, in his usual way. Uh, and the plot is moving along as it should. But uh, one of the things I, I wanted to mention here, uh, we're talking about Creatures that transform themselves in order to fool you and attack and use you. You really haven't seen too many horror movies that did that, but there are quite a few science fiction stories that do. Uh, I suppose most famously would be Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, but ultimately, other films have done that, other TV shows, and I have to say Star the Star Trek episode Man Trap is almost a parallel to Horror in the Heights because it features another hulking creature in its natural form 
that uh, can disguise itself uh, as people that the victim trusts. In that case, it was a salt vampire. Instead of eating flesh, it just drains you of salt. By the way, that the shot we've just seen of the two cops, including the young cop we had seen before, beautifully shot scene. They're just sitting in the car, but it was a soft lens. He's yawning. You got the. You really got the sense that uh, you know we're there. We are out there with them. And that is something I noticed from day one uh, when I first saw the Ripper, and I said, "Yeah, they they've managed to keep that handheld, loose uh, flavor, which is key for these stories, to work." And it's part of the pleasure of, of watching Kolchak the Night Stalker. Uh, by the way, again, we're, we're we're with these two cops now, and they're obviously going to be the next victims. Uh, it's Officer York, who is the uh, young cop that we saw before, and Officer Boxman, played by Eric Server. And uh, they're both, obviously, we kind of figure they're going to be, you know, subjected to the same experience as the other victims were. They'll be seeing people that they trust in order to soften them up. And uh, in one case here, it's uh, Officer DeVito, who... Uh, has, has an emotional connection to uh, Officer York. And in the other case, it's the, uh, it's the uh, policeman's mother, uh, who, of course, <laughs> your mother is your mother. And uh, sadly, he's the one that, that gets it. Uh, well, it would be sad in either case. Uh, there was some um, narration here that obviously they couldn't, Kolchak narration, they couldn't figure out a way to get it into the scene without stopping the action cold. But I, I will read that to you now. By the way, once again, another wonderful shot of part of the Rakshasa uh, and, and the whole thing with the flashlight, just beautifully done, perfectly matched to uh, the actor's movements. I like the fact that his hands are kind of like paws, you know, they, they, you get a sense of an animal creature just in the way his stance is. And the Carl Kolchak narration uh, at this point was basically... Nobody learned about all this until much later. On March 4th, Sergeant Ernest DeVito came off the sick list. He went to visit York. One look at DeVito, and York flipped completely. Ah, yes. Okay, yeah, it's just as well. That narration would not have fit in any kind of comfortable way. Uh, here we are in our next act, and it's an opportunity to... Uh, to uh, say hello to a wonderful character actor, Murray Madison. And Murray Matherson, we have seen in so many different things over the years. Uh, a wonderful character, actor. You may remember him from uh, The Twilight Zone. He played the clown in Five Characters in Search of an Exit. That's where they all turned out to be dolls at the end. And he's just been in so many different things. He's, he's always wonderful. Uh, and he's ideal in this episode. Um, he certainly qualifies in every way. Uh, because he's a bit eccentric, he's funny, he's a little snobby. Of course, snobbery was probably one of his strong suits as an actor. Uh, and the perfect fight. I mean, Carl right away messes up his name, reverses the, uh, the, the names in his name. And then, I have to say, uh, uh, 
Jimmy Sangster, being such a good writer in general, uses that. Uh, Carl follows up his screwed up name thing with uh, mentioning that I'm going to try not to put the cart before the, the ox as he continues his conversation. And that is what we would do if we screwed up. We would kind of chuckle at ourselves for a moment and then try to, you know, get past that. Anyway, at this point, uh, by the way, those are that's, uh, Peter Paul Eastman and Joe Pine as the uh, customers who are going, what the hell are these guys talking about? Uh, and even though he's reluctant at first, ultimately, uh, Murray Matheson playing uh, the expert Lane Marriott, that's the name that Carl Kolchak reversed, does start to come clean about the uh, Rakshasa legend. And I'll just feed you some information about it, what, what I've learned along with what he's being told. Uh, it's a supernatural being in Hinduism and Buddhism, and they are always flesh eaters. The female Rakshasa is called a Rakshasi. Rakshasas were believed to have been created from the breath of Brahma when he was asleep. And as soon as they were created, they were so filled with bloodlust that they started eating Brahma himself. And Brahma shouted, Rakshama, which is Sanskrit for protect me. And uh, Vishnu came to his aid, banishing to earth all Rakshasas, which were named after Brahma's cry for help. That's interesting. Rakshasas were most often depicted as shape-shifting, fierce-looking, and enormous creatures with two fangs protruding from the top of the mouth and having sharp claw-like fingernails. Um, they are shown as mean, growling beasts and, and insatiable man-eaters that could smell the scent of human flesh. Some of the more ferocious ones were shown with flaming red eyes and hair, drinking blood with the palms from their palms or uh, from a human skull. Uh, generally, they could fly, vanish, and, and had Maya, magical powers of illusion, which enabled them to change size at will and assume the form of any creature. Well, obviously, uh, Kolchak, the Night Stalker's weekly budget, could never afford uh, a Rakshasa that could fly, but one that could make use of Maya, the magical powers of illusion, yes, that was ideal. Not only was it perfect in terms of the budget, but if it's the power of illusion and you can appear to people as people they trust, it's character development because you're, you're, you're telling the audience something about what matters to these characters and we're getting another level. So it's a supernatural power that yields very interesting uh, uh, benefits as the story goes along. By the way, in keeping with what we've been saying about the kind of funny little movie theme in this, uh, we have Carl mentioning um, the ultimate movie, uh, at this point in the story, which is Citizen Kane, which uh, Lane Marriott here has indeed seen. I've never seen Citizen Kane. Uh, so yeah, so far we've had uh, movies mentioned a few times. We've had uh, Nelson Eddy, Jeanette McDonald. We've had Citizen Kane. And pretty soon we're going to have Bedtime for Bonzo, the infamous Ronald Reagan monkey movie. Uh, I don't know if it, were just, it was just the... Uh, story editors of the people working on the show, or if Jimmy Sangster himself was a movie buff, I would imagine Sangster was a real movie buff, uh, and probably worked those lines in this, himself. Uh, here we do have a depiction of uh, Bonzo the Chip with Fangs, which is how uh, Vincenzo will be describing him. Uh, but what's interesting about all this is, uh, a number of things are interesting about it. I mean, uh, if you have a creature like this, okay, and every episode had a creature like this, I always kind of figured, probably at the start of the show, uh, 
the story editor sat down, David Chase sat down maybe with his with his guys and said, okay, here's a book on classic mythological monsters, uh, from myths, fables, whatever. Let's go through it and see which ones we can use. Because ultimately the, um, the scripts for these episodes were often just titled the name of the monster. This was originally titled Rakshasa. And uh, all the others were, were, a lot of them were just named after the monster of that particular episode. Of course, later, more interesting titles were developed, but I'm sure that was how it was done. Uh, and uh, like I say, they, they found uh, these classic creatures that um, could fit very, very nicely with their budget and with their kinds of storylines. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting here. You, you, uh, we've been tracking their relationship in the story very, very carefully. We've had a somewhat more uh, 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 positive Vincenzo than usual, although at this point when he talks about the old people being senile, it inspires this reaction from this Emily, who is very offended, and rightfully so. Uh, quite honestly, I just think that uh, Vincenzo is just, once again, being pushed to the extreme. Normally, he would not uh, say anything that would be that offensive. Uh, and again, that was the bedtime for Bonzo moment, which is essentially what... Vincenzo was saying, that's what you should do with your story. Uh, <laughs> an interesting moment here. With It's almost like this is where I get my best stories, right? Uh, but uh, what's, what's curious, too, is, you know, we've spoken about the whole relationship between the main characters. And, uh, you know, Ron is the good little boy. Uh, but clearly Carl has very little use for him. Miss Emily is another story, and that is important to this story, as we are soon going to be finding out. Okay, we are now in Act 4 of Horror in the Heights, and uh, I see some nice stunt work here again, where the stuntman, the double, that's him right there, makes the jump right over, and Darren McGavin then emerges and uh, continues the scene. Uh, what's going to be important here is that uh, we're really going to be seeing uh, two monster hunters uh, basically exchanging views and sizing each other up. Although Carl would never consider himself a monster hunter. Like I say, it's a whole new thing with each story. I do want to mention something, too, that I haven't mentioned yet. I, I brought this up in another uh, commentary. This episode was part of what I call the second wind of Kolchak the Night Stalker. It was after the first half dozen shows, as much as we were enjoying it, it was, it was beginning to get into a bit of a rut. I mean, how many times can you watch those stuntman monsters throwing people about? But around the time of the Devil's Platform, things began to change. And you had the Devil's Platform, followed by Bad Medicine, followed by the Spanish Moss Murders, which was an excellent episode. And... I had mentioned this lineup in a previous commentary. I forgot to mention that. That's certainly one of the key episodes. Then you had a lesser one, The Energy Eater. But then we have Horror in the Heights. So this group of episodes uh, really kind of brought the show back for a while, and it reignited interest. We were, we were going with it, but we were so delighted when they started coming up with episodes that had really different concepts, very imaginative ideas. Okay, now we have the... Um, the uh, meeting of these two uh, uh, monster hunters, as I've been saying. Uh, but uh, it's clear that, um, uh, you know, uh, 
this character here that Abraham Sophia is playing uh, senses that Karl Kolchak might be his successor. Uh, he's the only person who's cared enough to look into this to the point that he has. Uh, and for 60 years, uh, he admits he's been doing this, and you have to be pure of heart and brave. Uh, he thinks Carl may be that man, but when he looks at him a little more closely, he, he tends to think, uh, no, maybe I'm wrong, perhaps not. Uh, but then again, perhaps yes, <laughs> because he does give him the, uh, the blessed arrows. He does sort of say, it's got to be you. Whether, you're, whether you want to do it or not, or whether you fully understand it or not, someone has to do it. And of course, Karl Kolchak, you know, it's a dirty job, but someone has to do it is his whole thing. Uh, that's what happens in every episode. What's interesting here, though, is the specific point that um, is made. Two interesting points. First, he will come to you as someone you trust. And of course, Karl mentions that hey, it's going to be tough with me because I don't trust anyone. Or does he? Okay. And that interests us as viewers because we get so little about Karl Kolchak. He lives at the office. He doesn't really seem to have a full life. Like Columbo, he's a very, very fully developed and, and totally entertaining two-dimensional character uh, who functions perfectly in the formulaic universe that's been created for him. So we're dying to kind of know little bit more about what makes him tick. Another interesting thing is, as we were discussing the actual lore uh, of the Rakshasa and how they were banished to Earth because of what they did, well, in this revised idea, uh, they were actually banished away from Earth and are forever struggling to return, very much like the H.P. Lovecraft gods and monsters. Uh, and the thing that will open the door to them returning into our world is... Um, <clears throat> If everything has degenerated, uh, you know, if, if, if things have gotten to such a terrible point where we don't trust each other and we're allowing our old people to die without dignity and people are living in, in terrible conditions, well, this may be the time uh, that all those negative things have opened that doorway and will be allowing this Rakshasa race to fully enter our world. Maybe we just open the door slightly and this one has gotten in and the other ones have gotten in, but boy, the, more, the worse things are getting with our society, the more this Lovecraftian type invasion could happen. So it's not just one monster you're worrying about or one here and there. And that was the, the case with a couple of Kolchak episodes. Of course, at this point in the story, we're building to our climax and we can't help thinking, okay, the Rakshasa is going to come to Carl as someone that he knows and trusts. And I have to admit, at this point, when I first saw it, I kind of figured it was going to be Vincenzo who shows up. Because when all is said and done, Vincenzo always is there for Carl. I don't know if, if, if dependability and trust are the same thing, but uh, we have seen... Vincenzo, all through these adventures, always being there for Carl, in spite of what Carl puts him through. Uh, but, you know, that would have been a bit much. It, it would have brought those that character relationship to a head. No, we couldn't do that right away. So it is indeed Miss Emily, which is a very, very logical choice. 
And again, a choice that was beautifully set up by the writer. Um, not only do we know that he cares for the old lady, but uh, it was it was set up that she's spending nights now writing mystery stories. And so there's a possibility she could be out at night here doing research for her novel. Um, some fans have mentioned that, gee, Rakshasa doesn't speak to his earlier victims, aren't they kind of breaking character? But no, the Rakshasa recognizes in Karl Kolchak an adversary who is not only armed with arrows, but is also armed with knowledge. So the creature, the Rakshasa, has to go uh, that extra length to fool Kolchak. But it really doesn't work, obviously. And there is the somewhat shocking moment of seeing this old, this beloved old lady shot that way. Of course, we then cut to the monster. Uh, and it's the only time in the episode that we do get to see the monster pretty clearly. Uh, nice up angle here as Carl reacts to the body. We're assuming it's disintegrating or disappearing, uh, but there will be no Rakshasa body when all is said and done. Okay, as we um, wrap things up here, uh, our, our wonderful writer, uh, Jimmy Sangster, uh, is tying up all the themes of trust and of getting our act together and of paying attention to uh, uh, people in our society who uh, need some assistance and being old is not necessarily a terrible thing. Uh, we all get old. It's part of nature's way. Oh, and by the way, we finally do learn that those SWAT stickers were actually symbols being used to ward off a Rakshasa. That's what that was all about. And here we have Miss Emily, really dressed up, with the elderly gentleman that she was talking about earlier that she was exchanging letters with, uh, who's obviously been getting his shots and is pretty frisky. And we are once again left with the idea that being old is not a bad thing. There is still life in people, you know, more than ever now as people are living longer. This is this is true. It's a very, very charming kind of way. This is when Carl realized, oh, that's him, the guy who was taking the shots. Oh, really have a good time, Miss Emily. <laughs> we feel his joy uh, with someone that he does care about. We feel good that he does care about someone. And uh, overall, you know, when all is said and done, this episode really did a lot of things. Uh, you know, it, it, it gave us a little bit more about Cole Kolchak, which we are very grateful for. Uh, and it created a monster that was not only imaginative, but which allowed for at least three different interesting themes to dovetail and give us one heck of a show. All I can say in closing is thanks for listening, and I'll be back again with another commentary. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Take care. Thank <laughs> you.